Uh, welcome to the Data Skeptics Podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Nathan Janos. Hi. Actually, it's Janos, right? Or is it Janos? Well, you know, our family goes by Janos, but I also go by Janos. Right. Or whatever you want, that's fine. It's Hungarian for John. Oh, really? Janos. Um, so you and I know each other for a while uh, professionally and as friends since. Mm-hmm. Um, we started working together at a place where we were doing a lot of search engine marketing stuff. Um, and I believe you're still in the advertising area. That's right. I kind of followed that lead from there and just took it to the next step, wherever that was. Mm-hmm. So yeah. tell, uh, if you would mind, give us a little bit of your background, education, interests, things like that. Well, I have uh, an undergraduate degree from MIT in computer science. Um, I did a focus in artificial intelligence there. I also um, worked on a couple of projects at the MIT Media Lab, one in interactive cinema, um, multi-linear narrative type exploration. That's where, if you're watching a movie, um, it would read your vital signs. I actually designed this little egg you would hold, and the movie would morph depending on how you were reacting to it. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. I worked on another project there. It was pretty cool, too, um, where we created this, basically, this device that had, um, was based on neural networks and genetic algorithms that would allow anyone to... Um, improvisationally express themselves in a musical way. So the, the guy whose project it was, Paul Nemirovsky, um, he was, he's basically a musical prodigy, and he wanted anybody to be able to pick up something and be able to express themselves musically without having to learn the instrument itself and spend all the time doing that. So that was an interesting project also. Um, you know, I, I, I always liked math and computers and exploring, um, data and modeling, really. Um, really, for me, computers are a kind of tool. They're a kind of microscope into uh, computational complexity. So whereas a, uh, a lens might let you see the moons around uh, Jupiter um, by dilating the universe and you know, exposing something new to us, um, I think that's what computers are. They're like a microscope or a telescope into computation. Yeah, I love that analogy. Um, so, you know, after school, um, I, I, start, I didn't want to go down the academic route and started a company with a buddy of mine um, where we made turntables um, that would let you uh, scratch and remix um, any type of audiovisual content. That was a company called EJ Enterprises. And I learned a lot about business, learned a lot about talking to people, um, learned a lot about firmware, mm-hmm. <laughs> video codecs. Um, and then I, and then I fell into, I did, you know, some other stuff, but I fell into this uh, world of, uh, mm, I guess when, it, when we were starting it, they called algorithms and, uh, and specifically applied to online advertising. And that's where I met Kyle. Mm-hmm. His company was acquired, uh, by a company that acquired our company. So we were like two, uh, cousin companies coming together. I didn't own it, though, when it was acquired. <laughs> it sounded like I was a rich man, but no. <laughs> oh, yeah, but uh, Kyle was a big part of the other company. And, and Kyle, to this day, is uh, probably one of the finest uh, engineers and data scientists uh, I've ever met. And he taught me a lot of stuff. Ah, you need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I could work with him again sometime. Yeah, one of these days. Yeah. Well, I guess we're working together now a little Indeed. bit. Indeed. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, what data science is doing for the advertising space and how we can measure it and some of the claims that are being made. 
And I, I hope the podcast can be for a general audience, not just us geeks. So maybe we should give sort of a definition of what advertising is, especially when we say digital ads. Sure. So there's different kinds of online advertising. They usually call these channels or different types of touch points. And um, right now, I'm not a super expert in the whole ecosystem there. I'm more on the, the modeling side, but there's display advertising. There's pay-per-click advertising. Um, you could think of organic search as a, not a type of advertising, but a type of navigational mm -hmm. source. There's affiliate advertising. There's email advertising. And there's different types of social uh, marketing and advertising and linking. So um, there's a whole spectrum. And what people are exploring this new frontier and um, you know they want to find out if the stuff is effective and people are going to be advertising across this whole spectrum of uh, channels um, including offline channels as well which, which I also deal with now mm -hmm. and um, people are spending money on all this and they want to you know and they're they know they're increasing the sales most of the time um, but they don't know how to attribute it they don't know how to attribute the value um, in a scientific way back right. to, to everything so that's what where the industry has really been going and they've been doing this um, really the new the new ecosystem is you know user level data um, we have you know we track every single touch point and interaction so I went on uh, this site Zenith Optimedia and you can take or leave their statistics for what they're worth but they report 161 billion was spent in advertising in 2012 um, I think some numbers are bigger some are smaller but certainly we can agree a huge amount of money spent on advertising um, Forty percent of that, um, they said, was TV, and this part surprised me a little bit. Uh, eighteen point seven percent in newspapers, and slightly less, eighteen point three on internet. Um, which I didn't realize newspapers were still around. I guess, um, and that internet was such a small slice, but certainly a growing slice. So, with so much being spent, um, anybody who's spending that money has the challenge of deciding where, where do I allocate my money and what's working for me. Um, and that's kind of this attribution problem that many people are working on and certainly has some value given the amount of money being spent there. Right. And that's really where the industry is going. There's some new terminology out there. We call it multi-touch attribution. And the idea is to get the um, real value of all your advertising cross-channel. So that means how do all your channels interact with each other? Um, and how do they share the um, effort for that, that final conversion, that final sale? And so that's the main problem right now. That's uh, where we've evolved as an industry from this sort of last click, um, as they call it, type of attribution where um, all the credit was generally given to your Google, uh, mm -hmm. your Google PPC type um, advertisement. Yeah, Google plays such a, an interesting role in the whole discussion, be, not, not only because they're giant, um, and of course there's also the Bing Yahoo product ad center. So uh, I mean to be a vendor agnostic podcast, but... Apologies if I just default to Google and say uh, AdWords uh, more than I say anything else. When they kind of came on the scene, they offered a lot more transparency and data than I think anyone ever saw before. When you were doing TV ads, I mean, there was Nielsen, uh, and I think there was some equivalent for radio, mm -hmm. but you were pretty blind to measure most anything except for maybe sweeping effects. You know, like if you create a vanity phone number that you'd never used before and you put that in a radio ad, of course you can say, oh, numbers, people started calling it within 15 minutes and mm -hmm. we never used it again and by two weeks later it was, it was dead and we could count the number of calls. But that's one thing Google did. And for anyone who's not familiar, I'd say it's worth the time and spending, you know, 
20, 30 bucks out of your pocket to sign up for an AdWords account and drive traffic to, you know, if you don't have something you want to promote, like your Etsy page or something, drive it to a friend's website or a, a restaurant you really like. Because going through and seeing the process is, I think, gives a lot of people some who don't have any some perspective on what internet advertising is, in particular the statistics they'll give you. So you bid on the specific search terms you want, which is way different from traditional advertising where you're essentially doing an all or nothing approach. You can't just put an ad in, you know, male subscribers to a magazine's version versus females. It's you're getting everyone. But on the online world I can say, no, only people who search for blue cheese do I want them to see my ad. And then Google will report to you what they call impressions, which are how many times they displayed that ad. Uh, the clicks you got, which is how many people who clicked on your ad, and then if you'll participate in their conversion tracking system, which is really, really easy, you can, let's say you have a website that sells blue cheese, on your thank you page after the checkout's complete, you put a little uh, piece of JavaScript that calls back to Google and <laughs> records that a transaction has happened. So you can go look and say, when I advertised for best in the world blue cheese, this many impressions, this many clicks, and turned into this many sales. So it really feels like, wow, I can calculate my ROI very precisely. If that sale was worth you know, $100 profit to me, and I had to buy 50 clicks, well, then my break-even point is $2 a click. Um, and because it's so precise, and the data is so readily available, and I can do something with that programmatically, it really feels like, hey, this is where it's got to go. All the money needs to go into this channel because I can measure it. And not only that, but I'm going to give all the credit there. Uh, but kind of as, as you were pointing out, the fact that I even went to search for world's finest blue cheese probably just didn't start out of thin air. Something had to give me that idea that right. I'd like to get some blue cheese. Right. We call that the funnel. And that's where the TV people, you know, keep insisting that the TV works in this whole process. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, that's one of the main drivers for this um, cross-channel attribution and um, you know at my company we have a lot of clients come and they say hey we know TV works but we're having a hard time showing the marketing department it works it's so easy for the guys doing the Google advertising to show that their marketing right. works and uh, in fact um, they're probably overstating their effectiveness because you, when you're looking through Google's dashboard it only knows about Google so it assumes that all the advertising effort for that conversion and and right. hence that conversion attribution to their click, uh, you know, came from them. Uh, but we know that's not true when you have other um, marketing channels that are active in the ecosystem. So um, you, you know, typically the advertisers classify different channels um, as being introducers. You know, that might be the brand awareness type thing. Um, there's influencers and there's closers. And there's probably different terms for those, but you know, they're moving the customer through the chain, making them aware of the product, um, getting a connection maybe, and then uh, pushing them to do that, that final sale. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is to give the proper credit throughout that chain and so that you can give the proper return on investment for all those different uh, parts of the chain. So one of the challenges I see in, in going down that path as an advertiser is you've got all these signals, you know, you've got that Google dashboard we talked about, and you've got hopefully some means of measuring TV, but everything is, like any scientific measurement, a weak measurement. A lot of online advertising is based around cookies for tracking. Um, yet, if you trust Comscore, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, uh, but they report that a study they did found 20% uh, of cookies get deleted by different privacy, or 20% of people have their 
first person cookies deleted, meaning like a website stores a cookie for that website and 30 to 40% of third party cookies get deleted. Yep. So if I'm using cookies to measure something, I've got to, and, and we could argue about the numbers, but certainly there's some margin of error there. There's a dark figure I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to have a lot of false negatives in this case. Yeah, um, so that is a problem. At Convertro, we actually um, solve for that problem um, by relying on a type of uh, cookie um, matching um, where we, we tune it to minimize those false positive associations. And we do this, and we establish an ID on our end, um, given characteristics about your browser, not including any personally identifiable information. Um, that way we can actually bridge the gap when people do delete their cookies. And we also always use a first-party tracking uh, with, our, with our clients, uh, because those have a, a lower deletion rate. Oh, interesting. So, it, and without, you know, obviously I'm not going to ask you for trade secrets or anything, so stop me if I'm it's walking up technology. to a client. Well, there you go. <laughs> So you're saying that even without the cookie, you might say, well, the guy, we know the precise version, like 5.67093 of Firefox he's running, plus his language, plus two or three other things, and that's fairly unique enough-ish that yes. we might say this guy is the same guy with some reliability. Yes. Interesting. That, that's what we're doing. And yeah, yeah, there's uh, perhaps uh, Bloom filters uh, involved mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. Uh, let's define a Bloom filter, because they're a cool data structure that I think a lot of people won't know. Why don't you define it for me? You're better at these. <laughs> I didn't look it up before yet. From the best of my memory, Bloom filters are a data structure that's attractive because they're compact, so you can store many things in there without, uh, with a low likelihood of collision, but also, so, you, so it's a hash essentially, so you can mm -hmm. do a quick lookup, um, and it's, it, because it has some loss on insert, uh, because of, of collision. Collision, yeah. Um, you might have a false positive, but you'll never have a false negative, I think are the features that make Bloom filters. I, I think that's right. And then, like you said, it's fast, yeah. which is important. So we mentioned, or you mentioned Convertro, but we never mentioned what that is, if you want to give a quick background. Um, Convertro is a company that uh, is, was founded out of the e-commerce world and uh, tracking all the online um, advertising touch points. Um, you know, they've extended themselves into the offline world now. And the idea of Convertro is to measure the real value of all the different marketing channels, um, cross-channel and cross-device, and to give a return on investment. And um, to do this as a, you know, an agnostic third party, as a service to our, our clients. Um, we do that through collecting their marketing exposure data, th uh, data through tags and, um, you know, offline feeds. And um, associating that with, uh, through this cookie-less tracking system, associating that with any of the eventual uh, conversion events. And uh, then we run some uh, math models on it, which I, I think is uh, another discussion that we could talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into those. Right. So, um, again, going back to this, what, what is data science? What is big data? What are, you know, what's going on with all this? Mm -hmm. why, why do we have these terms? Why are they sprouting out of our vernacular? The type of modeling we're talking about is a type of modeling which is uh, done on big data sets. Mm -hmm. And um, because of that, um, we, you know, we have this user level data that we're talking about. Um, you're going to find it in, in, in industries where there's just a lot of user level data readily available. And w one of those that's just kind of out there in the open is marketing and advertising. So, um, you know, this, a lot of this applies to any kind of industry and any kind of problem um, that we might have 
commercially or, or e even maybe with uh, organizing society. Um, there, there's lots of sort of big data problems that are probably really interesting out there. Um, but as far as this problem, we have millions or hundreds of millions of users that may have seen tens or hundreds of thousands of touch points. Mm -hmm. So you can th just think of this matrix. It's hundreds of millions of rows and tens or hundreds of thousands of columns. Mm -hmm. You got these these big matrices that you got to perform operations on, and so your 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 basic sort of ordinary least squares analysis is going to break down um, for a lot of reasons. And so I think one of the interesting things going on is that there are uh, ec econometricians and there are statisticians and our computer scientists working together now um, to create new software packages to let us run different types of regression, different types of machine learning on these large data sets. One of the people doing this is this guy Hasty at uh, Stanford, and he has a good free book online, um, just called Machine Learning, um, and and it's all about big data and how to look at these problems. But um, he's also developed a lot of the like uh, cutting edge uh, um, uh, packages out there right now, like the the GLM Net package, which is a a uh, way of uh, attacking these problems. So I was going to describe that a little bit because I think people, a lot yeah, of people definitely. are using this technique to, to look at these big problems. So what happens when you have a lot of predictors? Um, so uh, let's go back and define th this problem. So really what we're, we're talking about in this case is a type of supervised learning. We, we know the answer. We're looking at data. We know when people converted and we know mm -hmm. what they're exposed to. So we kind of want to learn that relationship. And one of the ways to do that is through a, um, a regression, a regression analysis. And um, one of the problems you're going to have if you have tens of thousands of predictors is some of them are going to be what they call collinear. Um, they might be at the same, moving at the same, same time together. Mm -hmm. And so how do you decide which one is actually explaining the, the conversion behavior in, the, in this case? Um, another is that um, you're just going to have a selection problem. And there are going to be different classes of variables as well. You can imagine there's a whole bunch of display classes. and. Um, at Convertor, we model all the way down to the creative level. So when possible, if there's data, we're modeling at that, at that individual display ad, at that individual um, Google PPC ad. Mm -hmm. um, we use um, a lot of people out there, but I just want to talk about the GLM that um, it's one of the things we use. It's a package that attacks this problem through something called uh, regularized uh, regression. It's called elastic net regularized regression. And it uses a, <coughs> a different type of penalty function. Um, so what it lets you do is tune between two extremes. One where you select very few variables to explain the output, and one where you select a little bit of every variable. And so it lets you tune between those, and really that's, um, it's lasso and ridge regression are some other words you hear for that, mm -hmm. um, or L1 and L2 norm um, penalization. And they're just a different way of giving penalty. There's a uh, sort of a, a squared way and a, um, a linear way of giving, an you know, absolute value of giving, um, 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 p penalizing, um, not fitting the data. And um, so at the heart of a lot of these, I'm talking about this penalization function, at the heart of a lot of these, <clears throat> any kind of model is you need to de define a fitness function or, or conversely a penalization function that tells how well it's doing. So you know if you should select that solution or not. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we're just using a combination of penalties and it lets us tune the behavior so that we can control for interclass correlation and the selection of variables. Um, uh, previously there are other techniques like uh, uh, one is called stepwise regression where you would either introduce or remove 
a variable from your regression to find out which ones mattered. But the problem is you could imagine that's a large search space when you have mm -hmm. 10,000 variables. Which ones do you remove at each step and where do you start? And you start by adding them or removing them and you're really kind of randomly wandering around inside of this space. And, it, and um, <clears throat> stepwise regressions prove to be unstable and you know they're not very robust. Mm -hmm. That's one of the benefits you get with your um, elastic net type of regression that's robust. You could remove one variable and the whole solution's not gonna change. And there are other packages, so sometimes just getting this data in memory is, is a big deal. So the other packages to, that will um, let you distribute these types of uh, regression analyses across multiple machines. And, um, and that's where we're intersecting with big data right there. So in, in the problem, is it something that can be parallelized? In other words, I can write a map and a reduce function and Something yes, like I, to do that, I, um, I think that was there. The first algorithms from that are probably from like the 70s, yeah. And, and a lot of the singular value decomposition mm -hmm. kind of matrix multiplication stuff can does fit into the map reduce framework. But there's these other new techniques right. com coming out, like these sort of Monte Carlo techniques, um, where okay, I have uh, a thousand nodes. Mm -hmm. And I have this problem with millions of pieces of data. Well, let me just send a little bit of data to each one of them, have them do their job, you know, and they're going to be a little bit inaccurate because they're not sure. working on all the data. Um, but they're going to come up with some answer. Then I'm going to collect all the answers and kind of average it out. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of like a, uh, I guess that's also a boosting type technique, Yeah. what they might call. Is that like uh, a partif particle filter approach, or I don't know. Um, I don't know what the particle particle filter approach is. What is that? It it sounds like what you're describing. It's where you have um, a, a complex stochastic problem where it's difficult to maintain your state estimate. Mm. So you have um, a couple of you have a pool of discrete um, assumptions about the state. So if, if you you know you're, you're in some state or you're uncertain in your state, you look at where you'll go next based on the actions that took place. And rather than trying to have a posterior probability distribution over that state space, instead you just say, well, I'm, I'm very likely to be in this state, so I'll assume I'm there. But then, obviously, that's a pretty gross assumption, so I'll make 20 similar assumptions proportionate with my expectation. And then I'll explore each of those. So there's a chance I um, skip the true state, in which case mm -hmm. I'll be very confused about where I am. But if my pool's big enough and I sampled well, one of my solutions was a correct guess, uh, sort of. Yep, yep. Uh, th there's generally I find that the fancier the wording for things, there's actually if you could <laughs> kind of explain it on a whiteboard, it's not that complicated usually. Yeah, I, I have the same complaint about a lot of stuff. I remember um, looking at some some of the first game theory literature I looked at. And I was like, wow, this stuff is so complex, man. The, the guys that dream this up must be real geniuses. And weeks later, when I finally penetrated it, I was like, no, these concepts are actually pretty simple. You just have a lot of symbols in here. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah d d people like to be very s uh, precise about how they specify things. Yeah. Which has its merits. Yeah. Um, you need to lay down the, the groundwork, to the foundation to make sure these techniques are actually uh, founded in, in, mathematically founded mm -hmm. in truth. You know. So going back to your, I like the way you formulated the problem of saying I've got 
all the user data and in the matrix crossed with mm -hmm. all these uh, observations I have about those users, mm -hmm. I would guess that in an attribution model, some of it you want to have uh, time series consideration. So, yeah. Google, you know, a click and a, if it's if you're going to attribute it to just Google AdWords, that click and comp and uh, conversion almost certainly need to come on the same day. But something like a billboard ad mm -hmm. or a bus stop ad, these are things that uh, you used a, a better industry term than I have, but. I would call them like they're planting the seed for a later purchase. Mm -hmm. um, so if I, if you think I saw a billboard on Tuesday and maybe I buy the product on Wednesday or maybe Thursday, there, there's something interesting about how many times I have to see it and mm -hmm. how long it takes until that treatment has an effect. Um, yet you can't, exp it, it would be hard I would think to explore, well what if it's one day, what if it's two days, up to n days. Um, how do you deal with uh, time delay and decay mm -hmm. modeling and that sort of thing? Yeah, so the, you know, I kind of class these all into the temporal effect. Mm -hmm. And there are just a ton of ways that people are trying to get at it. Um, traditionally, uh, people got at it with this concept called ad stock, um, which is really just a, you pick a decay value, and it's the decay of the awareness of, say, a television advertisement over the next three weeks. Mm -hmm. And there, you can actually look the people... You can pick the, the amount of time it decays and the decay factor for your particular business, but really the ad stock factor traditionally through the 60s and 70s was modeled on the order of two, three, four weeks. Um, so there's other ways to get at it. You can look at a, a sort of source decay. So after I saw that display ad, um, you know, how long did it affect me? Um, at Convergro, we have data-driven models uh, where we'll look at all the converting paths that have ever had display on it. And we'll, we can look at the... Um, you know, this is sort of a hazard uh, curve or a hazard function type of analysis mm -hmm. that they might use for um, analyzing the failure of hard drives after time of manufacture. And you can see that, hey, look at after three months, 99% of the people who will ever convert after seeing that display ad have already converted. So I know that perhaps I shouldn't include a display ad when I'm, you know, determining these source signatures to put into my matrix uh, for a regression if it's older than three months, hey, let's not include it uh, because we know it's decayed. Um, there are other decay notions in attribution modeling. Um, th again, these are sort of heuristic models and, and they're, they're kind of basic. Um, then there's, you know, basic time series modeling. Um, mm -hmm. So since the 60s and 70s, people have been doing this uh, mixed media modeling, um, which is an econometric time series type modeling, usually either on the weekly or daily level of all the amount of, uh, of all the money that was spent in these different channels and also the sales. And so you can build in lag dependent variables in, in there. Um, you can build in um, uh, lag in different types of ways. You can, you can, you can say, hey, uh, today's sales were also a function of yesterday's sales. Mm -hmm. That's called a lag dependent variable. Um, you could say today's sales were a function of yesterday's advertising and the day before that advertising and the day before that advertising. And so that's another way of including time. Um, you can also um, say if you're analyzing um, uh, chains of events, uh, say um, um, where there was a event where someone put something in their cart online and then they purchased, or maybe they did a lead form and then they subscribed and then they resubscribed. Mm -hmm. You can break down each of those subpaths in between the conversion events and use and iteratively regress on those and pass the value back through the chain. So that's another way of getting at it. Um, so those are a bunch of techniques. Um, um, 
Another one is um, dummy variables, also known as uh, fixed effects in, in some contexts. And you could add a dummy variable into these regression models for each. Um, typically, you could do one for each month. You could do them for holidays. You could do them for day of week. Um, you can do them for weekends or weekdays. And they allow you to establish sort of a, what I describe as sort of a secondary baseline or secondary intercept in the function um, for that particular time. And those dummy variables will soak up um, any of the, any of the, um, any of the other effects that we're not modeling for during those time periods, such as uh, weather and uh, seasonality, and maybe um, just the difference between how people buy sunglasses in Los Angeles compared to how they buy them in Seattle. So what's what's the value for the dummy variable in going into the regression? Um, the value, well, so the value, um, you'll have to look at it in terms of a design matrix. And the value is going to be a one, just like it was a constant. So in that, in that design matrix, um, you're going to have a one, say, for your, your baseline constant. Then you're going to have another one, but it's only going to occur sometimes. Um, say, for instance, we have a dummy variable for if um, you're on the eastern or western side of the United States. Mm -hmm. Say, we'll look at your IP address, and for that particular path, if you're on the western, then we'll give you a one for the western side. If you're on the eastern, we'll give you one for the eastern side. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? So it's a, it's de it's dependent on the metadata of whether or not you include an additional constant offset for that time gotcha. period. Yeah. Um, so then, is does that help you? One of the challenges you'd have in in coming out of the regression is saying, did I account for every variable I should have accounted for? Mm -hmm. So like, if there's you know some crazy news story, drove a lot of interest you know towards or away from some particular product. If you don't have a a, a variable capturing you know, new story equal true mm -hmm. at that time. Um, how well? I guess first question is how are your models? Which it would be fair for them to fail in that situation because you haven't informed them with enough data. In what way will they fail? And can you tell that they've failed? Yeah. So generally, you're going to tell if your models are failing um, by looking at some kind of uh, fitness factor or fit statistic that comes out of uh, running your model. That might be in some cases an R-squared type of um, fitness statistic. Um, it might be deviance. Um, uh, one I really like is just uh, looking at the, you know, just the residual error. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the residual error on, on both the data that you just fit and also in uh, uh, validation, you know, cross-validation set, and, uh, a, a set, a holdout set of data. Run it on that and see how well. The re, you know what the residuals look like on that. Mm -hmm. um, you know residuals in this context, for definition, are just the difference between your model and what the real data was. Mm -hmm. And you can you can actually quantify that as a percentage. You can say, hey, there was a fifteen percent uh, mean absolute percent error. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, now I can compare. I'll tweak the model. Now there's fourteen percent. Okay, maybe it's a little better. Mm -hmm. um, and this is generally what you're doing. So now, as far as adding variables. Uh, so this really smart guy I worked with explained linear regression this way to me. I thought it was uh, pretty pretty good. He said, well, all, all we're doing is we're trying to explain the variance in the output. So you have, you have some output, in this case, uh, some kind of sale. Does either a sale happen or not? You know, that's maybe a logistic regression, which we've kind of been talking about. And, mm -hmm. um, or maybe there's a, an amount of a sale um, or how many sales per day. Um, so that's your that's your dependent variable. That's your outcome that you're trying to understand. Now you're trying to... And that thing's going to be going up and down, you can imagine. You're trying to explain why does it go up and down. 
Well, you can put in factors and let's just say, um, okay, I'll just put in a factor, how much I spend on TV every day. Mm -hmm. And you could have a really simple model. My sales are related to, you know, Y equals MX plus B here. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, the B is going to be that base. It's going to be that constant. It's going to be how many people are buying stuff without any exposure to advertising. Right. And then the M in this case is going to be how well that advertising works. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe maybe you're also doing uh, other types of advertising, but you didn't put it into this model. Right. So um, what's going to happen there? Um, you know that the other two factors that you know the other two parameters that this model can move within, which is you know, the, the M and the B in this case, are going to absorb that. They're going to absorb that uh, effect. And, um, you know, generally the idea is that that's, a, you know, that base, that constant is going to absorb that effect because mm -hmm. um, it becomes part of the, uh, you know, not knowing about that other advertising becomes part of the inherent um, conversions that are happening without just you kind knowing. of noise in a way. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, you know, technically there's, there is an error um, distribution that's associated with all these um, uh, linear regressions as well. Mm-hmm. So when you look at you know the residuals approach, uh, I would one way I might characterize it is to say that that tells you um, the power your model has in explaining the the variables you're interested in. That's right. Given the input you gave it. Yeah. Um, so if you know you perhaps created a model that took into account a person's age and eye color, uh, it would come up with some regression, some fit, but likely have a very poor uh, you know, fit to the data. And you know that that way. Mm -hmm. Age is a nice indicator. Eye color probably is irrelevant. Um, but you're missing something, and you can tell that there. Um, as you add more and more variables, and knowing the deluge of data we have available to us, at some point it's, it's plausible that you come up with a regression that has a strong fit to the data but isn't necessarily meaningful. Exactly, and this is something that um, we all have to watch out for and that, you know, it's sort of a, a pitfall that you might see in some types of statistical models. So let's say I have a data set of uh, one month of data of sales. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dang, I want to I want to explain the sales for each of these days. Right. OK, well, um, I'm going to add in a variable that says how much I spent um, every week. OK, that, that actually works pretty well. And then maybe I get creative. I'm like, I'm going to add a variable for every day. Mm -hmm. So I have 30 days of spin I'm trying to predict, and I'm going to add 30 variables to explain this. And I'm going to put this in a regression model, and out pops something that fits the data perfectly. Right. And you're like, amazing, this, this <laughs> is a perfect R squared. Uh -huh. We're explaining everything. Well, the reason is, is that the model found out that it could just train each of your 30 variables for each of the days. And so there's really just a variable for each day. Now what you'll find out is if you use this on the next month's of data, you know, a holdout set, it would do very poorly <laughs> because, you know, the the model has been tuned for each of the specific days. It now now it doesn't know anything about how to predict the future because it's been tuned um, perfectly to, um, you know, another historical example. Mm -hmm. One fallacy a, a company could throw out is to say, you know, oh, there, there's company A and B who want to do some attribution work for us. Uh, company B says their fit is 99% accurate because mm -hmm. they've applied these techniques. So it sounds like great marketing, but actually it's not great science. Um, and I think you hit on the key of, well, how do we actually measure that? It's that these should make verifiable predictions about the future. Yeah. Um, can that become part of a feedback loop? Is that 
something you guys look at? Yeah, so there are, the, actually it's not even a hypothetical situation you, you've you put out there. <laughs> there, there are people out there saying we have 0.99 R-squared models. And, and in fact, there might be some cases where that's okay. If you just wanted to under, understand why something worked in the past or explain with some variables why something worked in the past, and you don't want to use that as a prediction model, sure. maybe, maybe that's okay. Maybe there's some argument for that. Um, yeah, but if you want to predict the future, um, that's a very good question. So um, I've actually looked into it with my colleagues. We thought, hey, would there, be, would there be a way to go out in the industry and say, hey, industry, you think you have a good model. Let's all measure ourselves against mm -hmm. each other. And I, I, actually, the more we thought about that, that's a pretty hard kind of proposition. As every company is going to have models that are tuned to their particular type of data formulation. Right, right. They're going to have... it's these models you know well they're simple up on the whiteboard are quite complex when they're implemented yeah. in code and i th you would have to have a third party and the holdout set would have to be secret and i think that there's in order basically i think the problem is in order to you'd have to pick some general data set and no one is going to spend as much time tuning their models to that general data set specification as they're going to be to their own models mm -hmm. all right so where does this leave us i, th I think the the only way you can really measure yourself then is to, you know, say, and this is what Convertro is doing, um, in your dashboard, you say, hey, we think uh, if you change your spin allocations at the top level, shift it a little bit more over here to TV and a little bit more over here to display, um, that next month your overall profit's going to go up 5%. Mm -hmm. Okay, they say, okay, I'm going to, I did that. Right. And they mark it on, on the chart. Mm -hmm. And you come back uh, a month later and you measure how, what actually happened against what we said was going to happen. And again, this goes to um, outside of using these fit statistics and everything. What mm -hmm. really matters at the end of the day is did you actually help right. help them save some money or, or, or increase their profit margins, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so the first people that are really going to be able to do that, no one's going to care what math you're using anymore. No one's going to care that it's right. fancy data science, blah, 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 blah. If if this stuff is actually making you money that then you, you're golden mm -hmm. I, I mean that's that's the ultimate verification validation of all of this so there's a challenge there too you've essentially proposed at that point an experiment change your behavior in this way and we forecast this outcome yes. so it can be verified but what can't necessarily be forecasted mm -hmm. is when that change is done and then 24 hours later uh, it comes out that the CFO is uh, a secret Nazi escapee, for, you know, <laughs> been living in South America and avoided Nuremberg, and your stock plummets and this and that. And then uh, someone comes back and says the forecast was garbage. And or or to put it in a less extreme way, the forecast doesn't hit, and then the analyst says, well, that's because there was a drop in the price of wheat, and we didn't anticipate that, and that's why BMW sales went down. It, although that's sort of a, a, a possible but probably spurious correlation. Um, so it, it kind of goes both ways. It's maybe over-penalizing in some case to the modeler and under-penalizing in other cases. Um, I guess where do you fall uh, in terms of the uncontrolled variables, the unpredictable things that the world's mm -hmm. filled with that are going to affect what might be a very good mathematical model? You can never uh, predict everything that's going to happen. Right. So. I mean, so part of the you know prudent process would be to include whatever you can possibly in conclude and control for in that model initially. Um, 
And, um, you know, we come across this problem all the time because you're going to tell some sort of prediction. And when it's not exactly right, um, you're going to sometimes lose credibility with people. Right. Um, you know, that's just, I think, part of the education process is that there really is not, uh, we don't know for sure, but there's some sort of confidence level around what we're telling you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we say, hey, um, if you do this, we think it will go up 1 to 14% at an average of 7% with a 95% confidence, mm-hmm. all right? Maybe it goes down 20%. Well, there maybe there's a 5% chance of that happening. Right. Um, you know, those unknown things. And and so I think that's actually a really important point is um, I think you'll find us, I think you'll find more um, sort of metrics and KPIs which are given in uh, ranges. Um, these, any of these things coming out of these models are, are really ranges we don't know for sure, but mm-hmm. we do know with some confidence what kind of range we should supply. And a bigger range means less confidence, but you could argue that any type of information is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to formulating your model, um, one of the challenges I see, and we talked a little bit about the accuracy of, of certain observations you can get. We know cookies aren't perfectly reliable, and there are other ways of tracking uniqueness, and they have their own margins of error. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly that's true of any measurement we take. Um, probably online stuff is more accurate just because it's, so hard-coded server logs as, as opposed to like the billboard example where even if you knew from GPS someone passed it, did they pass it going the right direction? Was it cloudy? Were they even looking at billboards? These sorts of challenges exist. So we, if we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to say that there's a margin of error that hopefully we have some estimate of. And it's going to kind of mount over all of our variables. And the... Uh, product of the regression can only be as good as the quality of the inputs for the most part Mm -hmm. um so i guess my question is when you um can you account for the accuracy of all the the measurements that are going in and how can those uh contribute to can a model even what's what's to convince us that we can even solve this problem when there's so much uncertainty yeah um so there's a couple factors um Whenever you whenever you fit a variable, um, you're going to get some kind of uh, say a, a t statistic on it, and it, mm-hmm. it's going to help you understand how well that variable is actually explaining the data. And be, you know, you could look at like, um, hey, it has a high coefficient, so it must be explaining it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you look and it has, oh well, the standard error on it is also really high, so maybe it it doesn't know it very well. So there's sort mm-hmm. of mathematical ways of finding out. Um, you know, if there's problems with the input, because um, I guess you would assume if there's some sort of problem with the input or it's dirty that um, hopefully it doesn't actually by chance correlate with the actual output. I guess mm-hmm. that's a problem. Um, the other issue is bias, I mm-hmm. think. Okay, so let's say we're um, looking at the uh, the user level and um, we happen to know that some of these users saw TV. So we put sort of a TV exposure on all these guys' mm-hmm. uh, uh, click paths. and. Um, um, what if uh, we're by chance, but only capturing 10% of the actual exposures? So uh, we're sort of biased. Uh, we know where there are, um, say, TV exposures happening, but we only know for 10% of the people. So we're kind of our data set's going to be um, underexposed to this. Right. And so um, that's actually pretty common, and it's pretty common when you're doing audience-type measurements mm-hmm. and, and, and looking at how different data sets intersect with each other. And so you do have to account for that bias. You either have there's there's uh, you know modeling and math types of ways of accounting for the bias and you know there's also you can account for the bias in the interpretation of the results of the model as well. Mm-hmm. Be like okay I know that 
I wasn't quite sure about this one thing, or there might be this extra overlap, and you need to interpret the resulting model accordingly in those cases. So what's that actually brings to an interesting question I was trying to get to around bias uh, of your measurements. So what, one challenge that anyone talking about uh, attribution has to face is multi-device problems, which are becoming even more and more common these days. You mm -hmm. know, I, I think I brought three things with me here today, a laptop, a tablet, and a phone. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some work being done trying to correlate and, and you know understand that I'm one unique person on all these devices, but it would be very disingenuous for anyone to say they've solved that problem. Uh, it's no. certainly a hard problem. Um, yet there are people who are single device people, um, you know, who have one machine, it's where they get everything from, or maybe just a TV and a single computer, who are going to be easier to track uniqueness on because they truly are unique at a machine level. Um, do you face challenges or uh, do you have to factor for things like that, that because someone, let's say, didn't install privacy software, they're easier to track, so they're overrepresented in your data set? Yeah, um, in the case of doing the sort of multi-touch user level type of regression, um, the artifact that that's going to leave in your data is going to create a bunch of divorced paths mm -hmm. that should otherwise be one. And so that's the type of bias that's going to be introduced is that you yeah, you no longer know the whole chain of events. Uh, you, know, you don't know the whole chain of uh, advertising exposures. Um, so the data set and the regression is going to be biased uh, accordingly, and and you're right. Uh, the cross device isn't is a very hard problem. It has not been solved well, and and um, you know we try to solve for that, but um, there are ways of solving for it through logins and through like sort of mm -hmm. third part third party. Say you log in through through your um, whatever you log in with your ID through two different devices. Well, now we know. Yep. Um, we know about your two different devices, but arguably that doesn't happen 100 percent of the time. <laughs> So um, you're still left with a sort of divorced data set. And I, I guess the idea is that you would get enough of a signal from that little bit of matching you do have. Um, but again, these, you're, you're right, these, these models aren't perfect. I'm, and really there's a whole question. Um, uh, we always validate our models against holdout sets and make sure that they're better than any other model that we know in any other previous version of the model. Um, but still, a lot of uh, there are a lot of paths out there which aren't very long. Maybe there's one exposure and then there's a purchase. Mm -hmm. so these are these are simple types of things. And in other words, um, there are situations where a an old school first click or last click type attribution really are not that bad. Mm -hmm. um, maybe let's, I, maybe let's... maybe you don't want to have me saying that on the, on the radio here. But <laughs> <laughs> well, let's define those because uh, I'm not sure that everyone will yeah. know. Uh, I mean, they're they're kind of self-explanatory. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you in the old days, you know, three years ago, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, you have your marketing department. They're like, how do we, um, uh, how do we value all this this, uh, you know, uh, our advertising? Um, well, they'll they'll say, oh, well, we sold a thousand dollars worth of stuff this day, and um, that was through traffic th uh, that Google brought us through a pay per click. So mm -hmm. we'll say, okay, and it, you know. Hey, it cost us 500 bucks to buy that traffic, and uh, we made a thousand dollars. So um, th there's the margin of return right there. Mm -hmm. um, and I have that because Google's very good at tracking. They've told me exactly how many people, how many clicks right. they sent me, and how many sales I generated from now, that. We'll expand our simple universe here just a little bit bigger. Say there's display ads. 
And maybe uh, these people are seeing the display ads on their favorite news sites, and then later they search for it and click on that pay-per-click ad. Mm -hmm. Well, you could so you could give credit two ways. You could give all the credit to that that pay-per-click, that final click, or you could give all the credit to that display. Who should get the more credit? I don't know. They probably should share it. It depends on which company you work for. <laughs> exactly. And, and really, it depends a lot of times on which department you're in. Oh, yeah. If you're, yeah, in, yeah. If you're in a display department, display yeah. gets the credit. Or the PPC yep. department, the PPC gets the credit. That's right. The reason you even did that search is because I first gave and, you the and idea. Now, and, and, now you, and now you're saying, um, <clears throat> we, uh, you know, that, that uh, you, there's twice as much credit that's being given than there, you know, actually should be given. Right. Is the, the sum of all the credit, if you let all the departments look at it siloed on their own is going to be more than more than uh, actually should be distributed yeah so neither of those makes sense to, for d one department to get the the entirety of credit for that sale that's right and that's you know and that's what we're talking about here is using statistical methods to determine that credit instead yeah so in a simplified way maybe i would say I'll look at, and your regression does this at a scale, essentially, right. but yeah. to, to kind of frame it for uh, non-mathematicians, uh, I'll look at some people that saw 10 display ads and did one search versus people that saw one display ad and 10 searches and see of those two groups where the conversions uh, are most fruitful. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and to extend that, it's um, to sort of the A-B testing example, mm -hmm. and you could, if possibly think of uh, regression as just a type of um, huge test that we do in the cases where we can't do an A-B test because there's too many variables where we don't have enough tests and regression kind of fills in the gaps. But let's look at two different paths. Um, there's one that had a five different types of marketing touch points on it. Um, and um, and, there, and let's say we had a thousand of those. And of those thousand, a hundred of them converted. Now we have another one, another thousand, and they're identical to that first thousand, mm -hmm. except that they have this TV um, exposure. And 200 of them converted. So mm -hmm. you could say that extra 100 people, uh, that extra 100 conversions, uh, incremental conversions is due to that TV because otherwise the paths are the same. Comparatively, and, yeah. And, yeah. That, and that's, how, um, that's how in the AB case and really how it works in the regression case once you have those coefficients determined, that's how you determine the incremental lift of each of the of touch points. In that way, you're kind of creating, uh, I think there's a more technical term for this, but in lieu of knowing the right word, it's like a after-the-fact experiment. You're saying like, well, I didn't conduct an experiment, but I do see here that there are two groups that can kind of be represented in, as a test in a control group. That's Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And you're, you're fitting a, uh, uh, a very high-dimensional plane to the data. It's mm -hmm. kind of wiggling in between these data points, I guess. Mm -hmm. So there's one, uh, I guess I mean this in a devil's advocate or just a purely skeptical way. Um, well, let me give you a, an anecdote first. In the around 2008, when the presidential election was going on, there were a bunch of big news stories about the mm. fact that the Obama administration was spending money to advertise for in-video game ads. Ads that, like, while you're playing, uh, I think EA was their big part. You'd play some EA game, and there'd be a billboard advertising Obama. And I suspect that for every one person that actually saw that ad in the game, 50 people heard about the fact that the ad was there and that this was a win not because the in-game advertising was of value, per perhaps it was, but it was a win because this was the first time anybody did this at a big scale and they got news which is ostensibly advertising mm -hmm. out of it. Um, and I think, 
I see that a lot where the first time something new happens, there's press about the fact that a new thing happened. Um, so there's there's a uh, it could be the case that take a big strong brand, something like a Coke or mm-hmm. Pepsi or Microsoft, it, you know, household names. Just making any perturbation is going to have different people take notice of something and garner uh, some positive return just because something new has happened. You know, like let's say uh, uh, BMW puts out a commercial where it's just 30 seconds of a blank piece of notepad and somebody writes BMW a bunch of times on it. It's probably a horrible ad and everyone hates it, but people will talk about it. They'll say, what's with this crazy ad? Why, why would they spend money on this? And just because there's buzz and it's different, because I made some perturbation, I made some change, that's going to have some net effect on my advertising. Mm-hmm. As a, so, whereas one might say, oh, switch to 10% of your budget away from TV and into magazines because our model suggests that that will be positive for your campaign. It could be just that that shift and the fact that now you're all over every magazine and in, in it's a change. It's not that necessarily that the magazine was the benefit um, how would you uh, address some, someone's claim? Maybe a competitor com- come up and say, we have a strategy and ours is just constant change. Well, you know, what we're trying to do is put Don Draper out of a job. <laughs> so like maybe uh, maybe the, uh, the guys who are advertising for Obama in 2008 got lucky with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to me this all, it kind of feels like, uh, okay, there's different types of sort of... Uh, much more coarse PR type uh, exposures you could do. You could um, send a guy up and have him jump out of the edge of space for your uh, energy drink product. Right. All right. So, um, yeah. So that's the that's the I would say uh, in a whole different world uh, from what we're doing. Basically, um, I'm not saying there isn't huge value there, but um, and I'm not saying that the you can't measure that. I mean, you'd use our technologies to sure. measure that. And so if you could convert that type, yeah, I don't think that what we're talking about now, the type of technologies and data science we're talking about is not going to be able to give you really cool, human, smart types of suggestions like shoot a guy out of a cannon. Sure, yeah, It's, yeah. it's, it's going to give you an, answers in numbers. We're at least six months away from but, that. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Is that what they said in the, in the 60s, the summer they were going to solve artificial, uh, artificial <laughs> right, intelligence? Right, yeah. um, but you know we can still measure that with our techniques. Mm-hmm. We can measure that effect if we could uh, fit that as an input into our models. Mm-hmm. But if if someone made the claim, uh, simply you're at advertising at an aggregate works. It's hard to measure. Maybe these models are useful. Maybe they're not. Just shifting your budget around is going to. Well, actually, no. It doesn't make the predictive claims. If if you attach with it, like you'll have this ROI. See, yes. I don't get that with just the perturbation approach. Yes, yes. It's gonna, and we're we're modeling in the the elasticities, or in other words, the um, diminishing um, return on investment. Because mm-hmm. um, I th- you mentioned this a, a lot earlier in our conversation, is that okay? Maybe it's a dollar ten for PPC now, um, but if I c- bought a whole bunch of it, it's gonna get less. Uh, yeah, I can yeah. get less return on my investment. Exactly. Because um, there, there's, at the end of the day, there's only, uh, whatever it is, six or seven billion people on Earth now. Right. And um, uh, you can, so they, they can only buy so much. Right. Um, this, this could go into another conversation as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that leads me to something interesting, too, is the, 
you don't really, to some degree, you have some control over your inputs. You can run certain experiments, and you're you're rec making recommendations to advertisers to make changes, and you can see the response to those. But a lot of the data you have is sort of accidental data or organic. It it is what it is. So if you know, let's say a company had been spending, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month on TV ads. Uh, that's probably not enough, but let's just go with a round number. Um, and you are able to ascertain that that's converting especially well. That's their most valuable channel. The natural recommendation is invest more, and perhaps you could even recommend it at a level. But the only data point you have is a hundred thousand a month. Um, you know, so you're kind of in a vacuum. It's like you're regressing against one data point. What will? But there will be some. It won't. It probably won't scale linearly. You won't get double your return for double your investment per right. se. Or maybe you will, but to so at some point you won't. Um, how can you forecast into those dark areas where there is no data yet? Well, I mean, from a modeling perspective, you can you can look at how other similar experiments have gone, mm -hmm. and so you can understand that a, a sort of global um, way that the diminishing return on investment works. Um, in your example, I guess you just have one data point, but um, if you spend a hundred thousand a month, maybe you know how much you spend each day, mm -hmm. and and you would again, you would need to. It's really important to interpret the model um, in terms of how you ran it. So if you really don't have one data point, you maybe you shouldn't be making uh, any any kind of pr predictions on the future off one data point. But sure. Well, I meant it more in that. Uh, let's say your budget is about the same, so you have. Yeah. You know, some variance, one month you spent 95, next month 105, but essentially yeah. all your observations are clustered, of which you have many. Yeah, so I, th around. I think one thing we haven't talked about is that a lot of the, the work I'm doing is more than just telling you spend more or less in the top-level channels. So mm -hmm. we, we kind of divide that into the strategic optimization, which you might have the top-level executives okaying money, switching from department to department. Mm -hmm. But then you have the actual operators within the channels, and they need to know how to spend money on different programs on different networks for their television mm -hmm. on different um, you know platforms for different display you know on different keywords and so that's that more day-to-day -day sort of technical type of optimization and there are ways of giving recommendations at both of those levels um, depending on the type of business you have and, and what your objectives are I don't know if that answers no, your I mean, question that makes um, so I want to ask a little bit about how models can work for different types of businesses. So yeah. let's say you have a very small mom and pop shop and they have a consistent business and in the linear regression example you gave earlier, there is a flat intercept that, that B value is pretty constant and now they've decided they're going to invest in some advertising. They buy uh, TV ads that are going to run for a two week period. They should be able to look at you know, the, the number of calls they're getting or number of sales they're generating and see a response curve with a nice decay. And you have a very, because it's isolated and it's a singular treatment, you have a really clean data set of which you can uh, make some assumptions. Mm -hmm. But then look at a company like Coke, Pepsi, Microsoft, any big household brand. And they're, ad they're everywhere and they're, all, you know, dozens of advertising activities constantly taking place. And... I've often wondered, what if Coke decided, you know what, on May 21st, we're not going to do any advertising that day. We're going to cut our budget by 1 365th for the year, and that's the day we're taking off. Now, of, of course, 
even doing that's going co to would cost you a lot of money to execute that plan. But just assume you could do there was a switch you could flip. Mm -hmm. I doubt if we'd look and see Coke revenue have plummet and have this little spike. I, I think you'd see a pretty constant uh, you know plot when you looked at that later. Mm -hmm. Now, if you did that for two days, maybe so. If you just stopped for an entire year, at some point, yeah, I'm almost certain we'd see a decline. But uh, I guess so I'm asking two questions. One is how can models work or can they work in a homogenous way across advertisers? And secondly, how can they account for this uh, complex ecosystem where, you know, I, if my hypothesis is true that one day of no advertising would have no net effect. Yeah. How can that all roll together? Yeah, so I um, actually wanted to mention this a little earlier, um, and what I'm going to talk about is just the base in our equation, the mm -hmm. constant, the intercept. Um, that can be interpreted in econometric models as being the brand awareness or the brand equity. Mm -hmm. And in models I've seen for Coca-Cola and, and these other big brands you mentioned, these bases, that constant might explain up 90 plus percent mm. of the sales. Mm -hmm. So everything else that they're doing doesn't sure. matter. And and you hear, oh, Coke's, you know, the, one of the most valuable brands on earth. Right. Well, that's that's why that when you try to model everything, it turns out that the reason for sales of Coke is that there were sales yesterday of Coke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that that's actually 90% of the reason um, you know, that it's just the awareness of the brand doesn't have to do with seeing the, the polar bear so much. And what it does happen to do, you know, what, what does have to do with is seeing that polar bear, you know, every Christmas year and year mm -hmm. and year. And and you're right, if you stopped all advertising, Coke's, you know, profits would go down a few percent. But after, uh, probably, they'd probably still don't okay after a year. Maybe, yeah. But maybe after 10 years, you might not hear about Coke so much anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's some decay effect, and I think that would be a whole other sort of sub-model on that brand equity over time. Mm -hmm. Now, conversely, so if you have, you, you know, all these models have this base or this, this constant term in them. If you're a, a super direct response company, you're selling a nose flute on a infomercial, right? right? <clears throat> the base in that equation is gonna be really small because <laughs> no one's gonna know about this before or after. Right. And the only people they're gonna buy are because they saw that infomercial. And so, in fact, that money that you spend on the infomercial is going to explain 90% of the purchases in, in that model. Sure. Ah, uh, yeah, that, that's really insightful that, that your model can account for that, that intercept, that brand, yeah. uh, you call it brand equity, I think. Yeah, and you can, so you can uh, run time series models and run them, say you run them on the last 90 days of data and you run them forward kind of rolling, mm -hmm. and you could graph that, uh, that base as time progresses and you can see how that brand equity, so that it's you know for a big brand it's like this big monster that kind of lumbers around mm -hmm. and it's going to move slowly up and down um, sort of generally being blown around by everything else that's going on mm -hmm. at least in economics the we would i think generally accept the world is an incredibly stochastic place and there's there's a limit to the predictability we'll get to not just because there are going to be events that no one could have foreseen you know an earthquake's going to happen and of course prices uh, are purchasing of certain things will go up and down in response to that and we didn't know what was going to happen but along the way as we're modeling it the the modeler needs to make some choices about how how much more time do i invest pursuing new variables to add into this mm -hmm. um and there's no at least to my knowledge no clear uh, theoretical upper bound there like we know we can get to an explanatory model that has this quality of fitness um 
yet at some point we can't invest ten trillion dollars in a staff of a thousand to collect every little data point that might fit. Uh, how do you guys go about approaching what's the right data set? Well, I will. I'll never claim that we can do it perfectly, and I think that at some point you're going to come up the limit of you're not. We're not modeling the human mind yet. Right. Um, to do advertising maybe perfectly, and this um, is possibly a, a scary idea, but um, we could model the, the mind mm -hmm. and then model how advertising would work on the mind and give everyone their own unique advertising that makes them do exactly what we want them to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Luckily, we're not doing that yet. And um, so I think what you're talking about is um, how much effort um, do we spend in building inputs for the model right. what's the return on the effort of including yeah, inputs absolutely. yeah I, that's, that's actually an interesting analysis that could possibly be done i think you'd have to be able to quantify the the effort and the value of the input i guess you could quantify the value of the input by how well it explains the output mm -hmm. it's um it's a definitely an inex inexact game yeah <laughs> I, I don't i don't know what else to say um oh well there's a lot going on, especially nowadays, into more personalized advertising. So when we've identified, you know, a, a particular person, a search for, uh, I think the, the analogy people tossed around when this first even became a, a thought I started hearing 10 years ago was someone searches for flowers. Perhaps uh, certain demographics um, are interested in gardening. Other demographics are interested in sending flowers, like, uh, you know, 100 flowers kind of is the would be the best response right. in, in one case and in the other case some you know instructions for how to grow something um, and if the search system in that case can identify who you are and make a good forecast about what you're actually looking for from this very terse and not fully formed query of flowers they might give you a better uh, response and the same is somewhat true in advertising we've seen things like retargeting which I, I think is generally thought to have been a failure in general where essentially now you people who are engaging in those activities are probably adding noise to an attribution model I would guess because now where what mm -hmm. you thought was one channel is actually this multivariate sort of thing where for the people that they're personalizing very well to it performs one way and then for the other people it's performing you know in some different way would you just let that fall out at an aggregate or does that fit into a model we do two things we will filter out certain types of traffic if there is mm. a a coupon affiliate type touch point which happens you know within like five or ten seconds of the actual conversion we know that that's fraudulent or that that's probably not a real deal mm -hmm. that makes sense. um so you can do that um and the other thing you can do is if if they truly aren't associated with conversions, the statistics should determine that that is an invaluable touch point and it won't get any weight, mm -hmm. right? Because it's included equally on all types of converting and non-converting paths. So, it, you know, what the statistics see is that, hey, when it's included, it doesn't make a change. So there's no value in it. Mm -hmm. So I got one. I'm, I was inspired. Uh, Going to give you just kind of a last softball brain teaser kind of question. Mm -hmm. I was inspired a little bit by a talk which I, I was trying to find this week. I couldn't track down. It was either a talk I saw or uh, article I read or something like that. But about the early guys at Amazon who developed their recommendation system, and the the joke that the team had was, well, when is our work complete? And we'll know that our work is finally finished when Amazon web page when you go to it shows one product and it's the exact product you buy 
And that's how we'll know our recommender's uh, finally finished. Um, in the spirit of that, uh, maybe one could say that advertising is essentially just content. Because it is, but uh, you want to get the right content in front of the right people. Um, so if advertising became a, quote, solved, unquote, problem, there wouldn't be advertising anymore. You would just have channels putting the right information on the right channels. And then the, if that problem could be solved, the just sort of game over. There is no more advertising. Or on the flip side of that, I guess the antithesis would be to say that um, even if we get there, someone who wants to push their product is going to start yelling on a street corner, hey, buy this. And if they yell loud enough that they attract business, the fact that you're not yelling means you have to go and start yelling. And it's this detente where uh, because others are advertising, I have to start advertising. And there's this multiplayer kind of game taking place where, uh, I, so I guess in more of the modeling context, the fact that I'm going to make a change will have other people make a change. And that in theory will show up in the future in my data. Can you account for that, or is that just the nature of the uh, unpredictability of the world? Well, I think people will always come up with um, disruptive technologies mm -hmm. based on old or new technologies um, to advertise to us, unless it becomes illegal. <laughs> um, the way, so I think this is a really interesting topic, actually. What is advertising going to be like in the future, and what we, and what do you want it to be like, and what do I want it to be like? Yeah. And I really think there's going to be a kind of knob, and you have this knob associated with you, and you can turn it up or down. And when you turn it up, it, it floods you with advertisement, but you, you get paid for it, mm -hmm. or you get reimbursed for it. So I would imagine... Um, a family that wants to have their TV, their TV service, all their cell phones, their, lap hot, their laptops, um, their tablets, all paid for. Um, they can turn that switch way up. Mm -hmm. They don't have to pay a monthly fine for any of this. They don't have to buy any of this equipment. Right. And they see bunches of advertisements everywhere in, all their, yeah. in, in their experience. Now, me, I actually don't want to see any of this. So I right. turn it all the way down. And you might get charged for that. Sure. All right? You might have to pay to... God forbid, you might have to pay to read your New Yorker without advertising. <laughs> um, I actually think I should get paid to read the New Yorker, but I don't. <laughs> I, I guess I, I pay a couple bucks. I can't believe that that's all that's holding up the whole institution. But if you if you could choose this sort of switch, what uh, would you? I would choose to have no advertising in my life whatsoever. Do you think? Do you yeah, think I, corporations are going to be okay with that? Oh, certainly not. Well, <laughs> hmm. do you think that? Do you think that? Do you think it might be impossible to even get away from advertising? Like it might be somehow illegal to extract yourself from advertising in the future. Illegal to extract is a tough claim to, to make. I'm not sure. But I actually want to retract my certainly not answer <laughs> because I thought about it more from the advertiser's perspective. The guy who's running, if I'm running an ad blocker, essentially what that means is I'm paying an advertiser to show an ad and that advertiser or that advertising system, you know, whether it's a display, real-time display network or it's Google or whomever, think they're sending me an ad and only in my client, in my browser, is it being blocked and they might not know that. So that advertiser is paying for a service they didn't receive. Uh, if I were an advertiser and I knew your knob was turned off, I might be happy about that because I'm not going to waste spend on you. But I, the flip side is like, no, I want to get through to everybody. I want to 
be that spam artist. Yeah, um, and I might add, you framed that that idea that way. What about me uh, framing it this way? I re- I was exposed to an ad that I did not choose to be exposed to. <laughs> like, you, you know, like what about what about my rights to 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 what goes into my eyeballs? Yeah. Well, I mean, I. If I don't like the ads on a website, I can choose not to go there. Yep. But uh, if I, I've noticed my the TV I bought when I turn it on, there's an ad for the another product that that company owns, and that kind of annoys me. So it's probably baked into a circuit somewhere. Yeah, probably. Is it, is it? It's it's internet ready, so I'm sure oh. it updates itself. Oh, my, oh no! So there you go. Now you have advertising baked into the TV that you can't get rid of. Right. Although I could also make the argument that I chose to buy that TV. Now, I wasn't aware of this quote-unquote feature when I bought it, or I might have selected a different model, but hypothetically, the free market could give us TVs that don't have garbage built into them, and those uh, manufacturers would make more money. But it'll, be, it'll certainly be an interesting time to see where, what role legislation plays and what advertising looks like in the future. Yeah, let's hope that it uh, becomes more and more targeted and that we have the right to turn the targeting off if we wish. Yeah. Um, I think uh, anything that contributes to targeting is in a way a benefit because why would I want to see a garbage ad that has nothing to do with me? If it's targeted to me, maybe I don't like being advertised to, but if it's at least vaguely relevant, there are times when advertising does come off as a service. Yeah, uh, right. I'm I'm, all, I'm always very suspicious of anyone who claims that advertising is a good service for people, but that that is a good suspicion <laughs> to have. <laughs> it's my it, this is my skepticism about the system. My only uh, counterexample is like Ticketfly. I get emails from them. I don't remember asking for them to send me emails, but every once in a while I'll be like, oh, the whole study's in town, or Man Man is playing at the LRA. Cool, and I didn't know that, and that's so it was ended up being news. Uh, I would say that's almost like uh, you're part of a community. Yeah, it, it's, it's a fine which, line. Which is a way of advertising. <laughs> Indeed. So I like to kind of end every episode and ask my guest to give me uh, one, what I call a benevolent link, which is something you have nothing to do with but would like to give some advertising, if you will, to something you find valuable, and one completely self-serving link that uh, benefits you and uh, you get something hopefully out of it. Well, for my benevolent link, I would uh, point people to the Long Now Foundation, which is a, a foundation that's um, think it's very creative uh, group that's thinking about different ways uh, for us to think about time, you know, and our place on the planet. Uh, so one of their projects is a clock. It's called the Ten Thousand Year Clock, and um, so the idea was, hey, is can we build a clock that will run for ten thousand years? That in and of itself is a really interesting yeah. engineering question. And they indeed built several models of this, prototyped it, and they have a clock. It's based on Bronze Age technology, or can be maintained with Bronze Age technology, which is one of the requirements so that anybody in the future can fix it with, you know. That's really It cool. needs to be charged. Um, it gets charged off people coming to visit it by standing <laughs> on a platform that kind of moves it. down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And it has a, it, I th- believe it just tracks days, and it has this, thing they call the I think the the cylinder of time or the cam of time um, and there's a n- needle that kind of falls on it and it's this kind of beautiful feminine shape which um, 
describes basically where the sun's going to be every day of the year when it looks up at noon um, with a detector for the next 10,000 years, something like that. And that's very interesting. They have yeah. a they have a Rosetta type project. Uh, it's called the Rosetta Disk, where they um, inscribed like hundreds of different languages in, uh, on a single disk of sapphire that will last for many thousands of years. Uh, I think they're involved in like the uh, looking at the bristlecone pines in like Colorado that are very long-lived trees at high altitude. Um, so interesting projects. Mm -hmm. um, Self-serving, instead of uh, pitching my, my company, uh, I would pitch um, uh, my very close friend, uh, Jeff Jaganich, um, who uh, has some uh, fantastic art out there, some really abstract stuff. He just visited me and dropped off a piece that, um, that I was lucky enough to get off Kickstarter that he spent over a year on. Wow. And uh, just has a lot of really, really neat art. He's a, he's a true artist. Uh, he's uh, a resident in Denver right now. Excellent. I'll put links in the show notes for anyone mm -hmm. who wants to go check uh, both of those things out. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Nathan. This was awesome. Yeah, this was time. great. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Kyle. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, let's totally do that. <laughs>